Uh, so welcome here, everyone. I know we'll have some more people coming in yet, and uh, this is great to see so many people here that are interested in this topic. Uh, my name is Michael Zwagstra, and I'm a high school teacher. I've been a public school teacher now for the last 18 years. Uh, I currently teach uh, high school social studies, so courses like history and geography. Uh, prior to that, I had spent some time teaching at the middle years level, so I've experienced teaching at the grade five level, a variety of subjects. And uh, in addition to my teaching, I do uh, education uh, research and, uh, and policy work for the Frontier Center for Public Policy, which is a think tank located in Winnipeg, and so they've been very supportive of the work that I've done uh, in the field of education. And so I want to talk to you today about the, uh, the topic, content knowledge is key to learning. And I just want to lay out the case for why content knowledge is important, and uh, I plan to be putting forward some specific research that, uh, that backs this up. And first, I want to start out and uh, just see if my clicker, there we go. Uh, the topic of 21st century learning, we hear this all the time. We're in the year 2018 and we're still talking about 21st century learning. Uh, I, I'm assuming at some point it'll be 21st century and a half learning and maybe I'll do this long enough. We'll be talking about 22nd century learning because we'll be planning for it and such. But we see some of these quotes, and these are quotes that you can find uh, on a variety of education websites and school boards. You know, sayings like, the world is changing faster than ever before. I think we've heard that one, that's, uh, you know, we need to change, we need to hurry up and get with the times. We must prepare our students for jobs that do not even exist yet. Uh, that is another popular one. Think of all those jobs that don't exist and we have to train students with these transferable skills that aren't dependent on content so that way they can do that job that we have no idea what it's going to be. And that's what we're going to train our students for. Here's a direct quote from a, a school board website. Educators become activators of learning, creating a 21st century learning culture and providing access to the supports and the resources that learners need to succeed. So you can see again here the focus is on uh, you know, shifting that you know, as opposed to direct instruction and providing that, uh, uh, the direct input, rather we are activators of learning. We're the architects of learning is another term that we, that we will often hear. And then here's another quote, to reimagine education, teacher training requires a paradigm shift that goes beyond teaching students answers and instead, notice the instead, and instead teaching them how to ask the right questions, evaluate information critically, and communicate effectively. And so when you look at these types of quotes, and these are, these are a dime a dozen, we can find these just about anywhere, about everything is changing so fast, the world is moving so quickly, we need to have a paradigm shift in education, we need to focus less on specific content that's gonna be outdated, and more on the process of learning, and more on 21st century skills. Now here's another quote. The older teacher thought first of his subject matter that he get learned. The good teacher of the newer view well understands how it is the process itself, especially as socially conditioned, that educates. And he makes every effort to get and keep the process going on such terms as will cause it to gain an ever more certain and intelligently directed momentum. This is his chief aim. That attained, the rest follows. You know, at first glance, this looks like another one of the quotes we could just stick up on one of our contemporary education websites about how fast the world is changing, except the quote comes from this individual, William Hurd Kilpatrick, from his book, Remaking the Curriculum, 1936. 1936, William Hurd Kilpatrick said the same things that we're hearing in the 21st century skills movement. The only difference is that he wasn't gender neutral with the way he put it, but otherwise, you could take his quotes and just smack dab them right onto modern 21st century education. 
You know, how new is 21st century learning? How new is it really? Well, this is from the BC Ministry of Education, and this is straight from their website on the curriculum information. In British Columbia, there's some major changes happening in curriculum. Here's how their website puts it. Today, we live in a state of constant change. It is a technology-rich world where communication is instant and information is immediately accessible. The way we interact with each other personally, socially, and at work has changed forever. <clears throat> Knowledge is growing and information is changing extremely quickly, creating new possibilities. This is the world our students are entering. This sounds so exciting. Everything is changing so fast and the transformation is happening. How can we possibly focus on specific knowledge that everyone should have? Here's another quote. Am I wrong in thinking that education is changing now more than ever before? Life is vastly more complex in detail and we are far more tied up with others about us even to our most distant neighbors, said by William Hurt Kilpatrick again. <laughs> Except this is from Foundations of Method, 1925. You could literally take this and put it smack dab on the 21st century skills movement, the same thing. So now that I've sort of laid this out, that 21st century learning, this isn't really terribly new. There's nothing new about this idea that we should de-emphasize specific content and focus, as I said, on, 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 on these, the so-called process of learning. And of course, the question comes up about, well, can we not do both? And I agree, absolutely you can do both. But there's a false dichotomy out there, and the false dichotomy is not coming from advocates of content knowledge. The false dichotomy comes from those who are promoting the 21st century skills. Here's the BC Ministry of Education again, again taken from their website. What and how we teach our students has been redesigned to provide greater flexibility for teachers, while allowing space and time for students to develop their skills and explore their passions and interests. The deep understanding and application of knowledge is at the center of the new model, as opposed to the memory and recall of facts that previously shaped education around the globe for many decades. Again, you will notice the dichotomy that the BC Ministry of Education proposes here. They say, we've got deep understanding and application of knowledge on one side, and that is as opposed to the memory and recall of facts that previously shaped education. So memory and recall of facts, that's kind of passe. So of course we should reduce the amount of content. We should have less emphasis on specific knowledge that everyone should have. I'm going to argue the exact reverse. And in order to argue this, I need to lay out a few definitions. And what do I mean when I'm talking about content and knowledge and facts and all that sort of thing? So let me define it. How, I would say that facts, the way that I'm using the phrase, are pieces of information. So a classic example, two times two equals four. That is a fact. Not really that disputable. It is a fact. Uh, a concept, in the way that I'm going to use the term, can be described as an abstract or generic idea, sort of a broader idea. So for example, the theory of gravity, that is a concept. It's a concept that's pretty easy to back up, but usually a concept is, 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 a, broader, is a broader thing that includes sort of this, this more abstract idea. Knowledge is being aware of specific facts and concepts. So for example, being aware of the theory of gravity, being aware that two times two equals four, and a whole host of other things. When you have knowledge, it means that you are aware of specific things. 
But I'm not going to stop here because if I stopped here, it wouldn't be that hard for some to say, well, wait a second, our students actually, there's many things that students know without ever even coming into school. They know, uh, you know, they know their, social, their, their social circles. They know how to operate phones. They know contemporary culture. They know music. And it's legitimate. That's legitimate knowledge. Absolutely, students know all these things. But what they generally do not know when they come into school is content knowledge. And I define content knowledge as knowledge of subject-specific facts and concepts. So for example, knowledge of specific facts and concepts within mathematics, within science, within language arts, within social studies. That's what I'm referring to when I'm talking about content knowledge. And my argument is that content knowledge is absolutely essential. It is wrong to de-emphasize it. It actually needs more emphasis than ever before. And I'm going to make the case here by laying out three specific reasons why content knowledge is important. And then I'm going to provide some specific research studies and just summarize them that back up these points. And so I want to make the case as clearly and straightforwardly as I can with evidence. Since at Research Ed, we talk a lot about evidence. And so that's what I'm planning to put forward. So first reason why content knowledge is important, and I'm going to explain each of these a little bit more in just a bit. Uh, it is essential for reading comprehension. If we want students to understand what they're reading, you need content knowledge. Uh, it makes critical thinking possible. If we want students to be able to think critically, to be able to evaluate ideas, you need content knowledge. And third, it empowers students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So it empowers the students from homes where there's less wealth, there's less opportunity. Those are three reasons, and I think it would be safe to say that if I can show a reasonable amount of evidence for each of these three points, that that is a reasonable case to make for why content knowledge remains um, critically important in schools today. And so let me go over uh, some of these uh, points. So let me start with the topic of reading comprehension. And specifically, in order to become effective readers, students must be able to do two things. And we often get hung up on the first half of this here, because in one part, students need to be able to decode the words. It's important. You need to be able to actually say and read the word that's in front of you. You need to be able to see the word. You need to be able to say it. Now, we often stop here because we get bogged down in the age-old phonics versus whole language debate. And that's where the reading wars tend to focus on, is this question of do we need to teach the letters and the sounds and how they go together? Or could we have more of an approach where we're getting students to do guessing, you look at pictures, you do all of this. Um, I have a position on that one as well. I'm a big supporter of phonics. Uh, but that being said, that is often where the debate ends up stopping. And we also have to look at the question of students comprehending what they read, understanding what you read. It is entirely possible to be able to look at an article and be able to read every word on it and yet not understand what you are reading. Reading is not an abstract transferable skill. Reading ability is closely linked to background knowledge. The more that you know about a topic at hand, the more likely it is that you're going to be able to understand an article about it. So if you know about the topic of an article or book, you're more likely to be able to read and understand it. And I'm going to show you some research evidence in a second that, that strongly backs up these points. Let me give an anecdotal story first where I've seen this firsthand. 
Uh, I mentioned before that I currently teach high school, but I used to teach grade five. But one of the things that I was expected to do when teaching grade five was to evaluate students at their, and their, identify their reading level. And the way that we, were, that we did it was through something called running records, where you have, the, uh, you have the article at a specific reading level based on the word length and word complexity. And there's a variety of articles to choose from, so that way you, know, you don't get too bored hearing the same thing over and over again. And so I remember very well getting my students to read an article about Dr. Norman Bethune, the Canadian doctor who went to China. And uh, you know, it, it's a, an interesting character. Uh, and then I would have other students reading an article about baseball. And I noticed something very quickly, that both articles, the, the students who could read at a grade five level could read both articles in terms of saying each word. However, there was a huge difference in reading comprehension between the students reading the baseball article and the students reading the article about Dr. Norman Bethune. The reason they could understand the baseball article was because they knew about baseball. They, they could understand it. They knew they had background knowledge. They were aware of it. Dr. Norman Bethune, that article, they didn't have a clue. They'd never heard of, uh, 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 of Bethune and the situation going on in China and, uh, you know, and, and, and some of the complexities there and blood transfusions and all that. These were concepts that were not familiar to them. So even though both articles were at the exact same reading level according to the running record sheet, there was a vast difference in reading comprehension. The students who had the background knowledge at hand were able to actually read the article. That was one example from my own personal experience where it was really obvious. If you know about the topic, you're able to read it. If you don't know about the topic, it's very difficult to read it. So what are some research studies that back up this, uh, this point here? And I'm gonna give you several examples here. And uh, for those who are interested, I actually have hard copies of each of these studies here. If you're wanting to take a look at the printed version of any of these, I'm more than happy to, uh, uh, to have anyone take a look. And they're also available online relatively easy, easily. Uh, this one here, Donna Recht and Lauren Leslie, Effect of Prior Knowledge on Good and Poor Readers, uh, Memory of Text, uh, Journal of Educational Psychology from March of 1988. And basically what they did was they took a group of 64 junior high students and they broke them up into uh, four different groups and they classified them uh, on, in, uh, in two ways. First, on whether they were a strong reader or weak reader based on their reading level. And secondly, into lots of knowledge about baseball and limited knowledge about baseball. And what they found was that when reading an article about baseball, the poor readers, the students who were the ones that had the lowest reading level, could actually, could with, but they had background knowledge about baseball, they outperformed the good readers who lacked this background knowledge. And so actually, prior knowledge about baseball was more important to reading comprehension than your technical reading level. So if you don't know about baseball, you're gonna have a tough time figuring out, you know, hitting a home run. Bases were loaded. Imagine you have to look up every single word and an article. You can look up bases, you can look up R, you can look up loaded, and you're not gonna understand bases are loaded if you don't know anything about baseball. You know, you're gonna have a tough time with that. You know, Google can only do so much for you here. Uh, and frankly, if you're having to look up every single word and article, you know what you do? You just won't read the article because no one reads that way. No one reads an article in such a way that you're looking up every other word. You just give up. Second research study. This is from Wolfgang Schneider, uh, Joachim Korkel, Franz Weinert. Domain-specific knowledge and memory performance in comparison of high and low aptitude children. This is from the Journal of Educational Psychology. They did a similar research study, and this is with several different grade levels with an even larger sample size, and this time it was an article about soccer. 
And they found that students, in, in, th in this case, the study had the classifications of low IQ and high IQ. I won't get into any you know, debate about whether you know, that's a good uh, measurement or whatever, but it, it certainly is, can be an indicator of uh, you know, approximate reading level in terms of what the test is indicating. And so the low IQ students, the students who had lower reading ability, who knew a lot about soccer, substantially outperformed the high IQ students, the students who could technically read it very well, with ver who knew little about soccer. Once again, content knowledge was key to reading comprehension. Third study uh, by Diana Aria, Alfreda Hebert, and David Pearson. This is from uh, uh, the International Electronic Journal of Elementary Education from 2011. And this was an interesting one because it was about grade three students. And in this one, they had uh, uh, different expository texts for, uh, for these uh, third grade students to read. Uh, again, a pretty, a fairly large sample size here. And they read on four science-related topics. And the four topics were tree frogs, soil, jelly beans, and toothpaste. Well, reading comprehension was great for the students who were reading about jelly beans and toothpaste. Wasn't so good for tree frogs and soil. Not hard to figure out why. The average grade three student is probably gonna know more about toothpaste and jelly beans than about tree frogs and soil. But remember, those four tech topics, texts that they were reading are at the same reading level. But again, it's your background knowledge. It's the knowledge you have in your brain prior to reading the article uh, that, that influences you there. And then a fourth research study, this one's very recent, and uh, uh, this is from uh, James Cunningham, Elfrida Hebert, uh, Heidi and Mesmer. This is from the Reading and Writing Journal from uh, uh, actually April of 2018 is when it was uh, published in print. And what they did here was they evaluated two of the best known reading level classification systems, the uh, Lexile framework and then one other. And what they found was that the reading level classification system on their own weren't doing, we don't do a terribly good job at predicting student comprehension. And again, the reason for this isn't hard to see. Because those reading levels, they're focusing on things like the word complexity and sentence length. You know, it's nice and quantitative. You can average it all out and say, this is the official reading level. And it's, you know, this is sort of where we, and I remember doing this in my classroom years ago where, you know, I got my stickers and I was supposed to classify all my books in my classroom mm -hmm. library with this letter to indicate what the reading level is. And I remember as a classroom teacher noticing, wait a second, the students who know the, who know the topic of the book are really interested in it, they can read it no matter what sticker I put on there, so why am I putting the stickers on there? I'm just preventing them from reading the books that might actually benefit them the most. But again, not saying that reading levels in and of themselves are a bad thing, but it, it, it tends to you know, put too little emphasis on the importance of content knowledge. So let me talk about critical thinking, and why would I say that uh, content knowledge is essential for critical thinking? Well, critical thinking is not an abstract skill. Students can only think critically when they know something about the topic at hand. Here's an easy saying to remember. Ignorant people don't think critically, ever. Think of any time you've ever been in a conversation with a group of people and someone walks into the conversation, doesn't have a clue about the background of what you're talking about, and then says something, how many times do you go, wow, that was insightful. That is exactly what we needed. You're obviously using your critical thinking skills to solve this problem because you would solve this totally unrelated problem over here. So now, because you did all these critical thinking worksheets and you transferred the skill, now you can solve this problem. No, it doesn't work that way. When, you, when you're talking to a friend and you say, I need some advice about a situation I'm in, what do you do first? You tell them about the situation. 
You don't say, you know what, I'm not going to tell you anything about the situation. What strategies would you recommend I consider using in thinking about my problem? No, you tell them about it. You give them, you, you, you give them the information. Classroom level here, I teach history. And I can tell you this is true. A student who lacks background knowledge about the key provinces and individuals involved in the Confederation of 1867 is unlikely to do much critical thinking about why Confederation happened the way it did. It is unlikely, exceedingly unlikely, that someone who doesn't have a hot clue who Johnny MacDonald is or anything about you know, early, you know, what, what, what 19th century Canada was like or anything about the factors that led to Confederation and that student is going to give me some deep critical thought about why Confederation happened the way it is and how it could have been different if this different thing had changed, that is unlikely, exceedingly unlikely. You need to know about the topic. And we often over-assume how much background knowledge students have. Uh, students will often surprise us with ability. Students have fantastic abilities, but they often lack background knowledge. They often lack the specific knowledge of the topic at hand. And if you don't have the knowledge, you're not, going to be able to, uh, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot with it. Think of the debate that happened last fall about uh, the question that, uh, uh, of should schools be named after Johnny McDonald or not. It's been a hot topic. It's been debated a lot here in Ontario. Uh, I won't give you my view on it directly right here, but I will just say this. Whatever side you are on the issue, it, it certainly helps to know a lot of things about Johnny McDonald. It helps to know a lot about residential schools. Uh, it helps to know about the cultural context of 19th century Canada. And once you know all those things, now let's hear what you have to say about, uh, about whether schools should be named after Johnny McDonald. But if you don't have a clue who Johnny McDonald is, you know, if you happen to be, let's say, from another country and you're here visiting and you're going, who's Johnny McDonald? I don't care what you think about whether schools should be named after him or not. It doesn't matter because if you don't know anything about him, you can't think critically about that question. Knowledge, now here's an, oft, an objection that often comes up is this. Well, you know, I, my uncle so-and-so, he's memorized the Encyclopedia Britannica and yet he doesn't think critically. He's part of a cult. He's crazy. So just because he's knowledgeable, that doesn't prove he think, that we think critically. Very true. You can have the entire encyclopedia set, you can have the whole internet memorized for that matter, and not be a critical thinker. Entirely possible. But that doesn't mean that it's, that it's not important. And here's what I say, knowledge, while knowledge does not guarantee critical thinking, critical thinking is impossible without knowledge. So it does not take the, it does not something that you don't just memorize a bunch of facts, that is not, that alone is certainly not enough, uh, but if you're teaching critical thinking strategies, sort of these abstract transferable skills via worksheets and whatever else, and we're sort of just trying to teach them the process so that way they're ready for that job that hasn't been invented yet. Um, no, actually that, that's not really the best approach. Uh, knowledge is needed and it's as important now as ever. And so it remains important for students to memorize facts and have knowledge in their heads. We still have to know things, we still have to have knowledge in our heads. Uh, specific content knowledge remains critically important. And then a third, uh, and then some research studies here that back it up briefly. Uh, Sasha Helfenstein, Perti Saluma, uh, Mental Contents and Transfer from Psychological Research, July 2006. And uh, in a nutshell, what they did was they evaluated various science students and basically, to make it really simple, they sort of had the students learn how to solve a problem in one particular scientific domain and then seeing whether they could transfer that to another scientific domain and the transfer didn't go over very well. You, you need to have, 
content specific knowledge about that topic in order to in order to solve problems and so being able to solve something in one domain doesn't guarantee you can solve it in another. So I know a fair bit about history, uh, Canadian history. I, can, I could probably solve or respond to a lot of questions on that topic and think critically. Uh, if you were to hand me a scientific journal article regarding the latest engineering techniques for building a bridge, I wouldn't be terribly useful in that regard. It's not because I'm stupid and can't think critically, at least I hope that's not the case, but I don't know anything about engineering and building bridges. So my problem solving in Canadian history won't transfer that well into building bridges. So why would we expect to just transfer smoothly in the classroom from one subject to the other that, well, if you know how to think critically here, you can do it over there. No, not necessarily. Uh, here's a great uh, synthesis study by John Hattie and Greg Gregory Donahue. This is from uh, the NPJ Science of Learning Journal from 2016. And here's what they had to say in terms of summing up their analysis of research studies. These 21st century skills often are promoted as content-free and are able to be developed as separate courses. For example, critical thinking, resilience. Our model, however, suggests that such skills are likely best developed relative to some content. There is no need to develop learning strategy courses or teach the various strategies outside the context of the content. And again, John Hattie is pretty well known as an education researcher in terms of summing up educational research, and that's what he has to say about teaching critical thinking skills in isolation or separate from content or assuming it's going to transfer from one content to the next. It needs to go hand in hand with the content. This is from Jill Larkin and other authors from uh, Science. And they, this, this involved, uh, this was actually university students in this case, so older in this case, uh, but they had them dealing with physics problems. And it addressed the, it actually put students into the groups of novices and experts. And the question they were evaluating was, who benefits the most from looking up information? Is it the novice or the expert? Because the argument is often made that, well, if you don't know anything, look it up. And what they found in their study, has been confirmed elsewhere, is that the people who benefit the most from looking things up are experts because they know what to look up. They know how to supplement their information. When you're a novice, you will often get the wrong information, you'll get inaccurate information, you won't know how to synthesize the information. The more knowledgeable you are, the, be the more useful it is to look it up. So now you see the problem where you know, we give students a computer and, well, they don't know anything about it, no problem, we'll put them into the, their groups, we'll call them expert groups, and they'll look up on this topic and then they'll pool their ignorance together and then they'll all present to the rest of the class and as if that's a better approach than the teacher who actually knows about the topic, just maybe explaining to them and asking them some questions and then getting them to, now let's think critically. Uh, this, is a, uh, this isn't so much a research study on this one, this is more of a synthesis again, but this is a great article by Daniel Willingham. I really enjoyed his presentation this morning. And uh, it's called Critical Thinking, Why Is It So Hard to Teach? And here he says, critical thinking as well as scientific thinking and other domain-based thinking is not a skill. There is not a set of critical thinking skills that could be acquired and deployed regardless of context. When you look at all this, do you see how silly it is to talk about preparing for students that, for jobs that don't exist yet? They're going to put all our focus in training students for who knows what's going to happen. How do you prepare students for who knows what? You know, it, it just doesn't work. Now, let me talk about empowering disadvantaged students. Because the argument is often made, and I've heard it more than a few times, is that you know, this is, you know, this content knowledge, this is for rich people, you know, benefits rich people. It just reinforces the knowledge that rich people have and it reinforces, you know, the traditional knowledge stuff and it, 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 and it puts the disadvantaged students at, 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 you know, even worse behind. Absolutely wrong. 
Low socioeconomic status students enter school with a more limited vocabulary and shallower knowledge base than high socioeconomic status students. So in a nutshell, a student from a poor home on average is gonna to come to school knowing fewer words and fewer things than a student from a higher status home on average. Why is that? Well, if you're from a richer home, you're probably you know, exposed to more books. Your parents are more likely to read to you. You're more likely to visit museums. You're more likely to go on educational trips. You name it, you're exposed to a whole lot more things. When you're coming from a poor home, you're coming with a much bigger knowledge deficit. And when, how do we make this up? We have to make up this knowledge deficit. It's at the early grades, the essential time to impart specific knowledge to all students. Students should be learning lots of facts. Kids love to learn. Young kids love to memorize things. They love to know things. They love to have facts in their brain. But instead, you know, if, if we're gonna just focus on, you know, let's talk about your neighborhood and let's focus on what you already know and let's, you're disadvantaging the poor students the most because they aren't going to make it up. Subject-specific content knowledge doesn't come naturally. If it's not, if you don't have it directly taught, if the teacher isn't making a direct effort to make sure the knowledge is conveyed, the students aren't going to pick it up on their own. They'll learn on their own how to use their phone. So schools, we don't have to worry about showing students how to use technology. They got it. They'll do it. But we do have to worry a little bit about showing them how to solve math questions. We, we, we have to show them you know, a little bit about Canadian history. They're not going to do that on their own. Uh, low socioeconomic students benefit the most from content-rich instruction since they gain knowledge that they would not have received otherwise. If you don't gain that knowledge, you fall behind. And by the way, notice what you fall further behind on. You have less knowledge in your head. And you know what that impacts? Your reading comprehension. And now when you get to the higher grade levels, you learn even less than before because now you can't, now you can't read because you were, you were behind before. You, don't, you, didn't, you didn't have the background knowledge to understand. Now you have even less because you, you haven't been filled up with this additional knowledge. Your pail hasn't been filled, uh, to, to misquote a little bit. Uh, you, you don't have that additional info that, uh, that you need. And so now you're at a further deficit. And, uh, and uh, high school, it becomes very hard to make that up. So the more a student knows, the more they're able to learn. And uh, so this is a basic principle. You, the more you already know, the more you can learn. I mean, and you know, yourselves think about sort of topics that you know a lot about, and it's really easy to get more info about that. It's not hard for me to learn new stuff about Canadian Confederation, or it's really easy. I, can, I, I continue, I read books on it, and I get more info. It's great because I've got all this information already in my head. I can process it, and I can, I can fill it up. Someone who doesn't have a clue about it, it's tough to learn. So let's take a look at some research studies here. Erica Hoff, the specificity of environmental influence, socioeconomic status affects early vocabulary development via maternal speech from child development 2003, states the following. In conclusion, common belief and scientific evidence are in agreement that children from more advantaged homes have more advanced language skills than children of the same age from less advantaged homes. So pretty simple. You're from a more advantaged home, you've got more vocabulary, you know more than if you're not. Uh, next research study, Keith Stanifich, Matthew effects in reading, some consequences of individual differences in the acquisition of literacy from the reading research quarterly. He says, children with inadequate vocabularies who read slowly and without enjoyment read less and as a result have slower development to vocabulary knowledge which inhibits further growth in reading ability. And he calls it the Matthew effect. 
Now, in order to have the full understanding of it, you need to know that the Matthew effect it's referencing in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, to him who is much, more will be given. To him who is little, what little he has will be taken away. Now that you know that quote and that background, oh, now I fully understand. Just a little tidbit of why content knowledge is important. But So basically, if you're behind, you fall further behind. If you're ahead, you go farther ahead. If you don't make up that knowledge deficit, they don't naturally catch up. They naturally fall farther behind. This is a, a, an interesting one as well by Susan Sonnerstein, Linda Baker, Adia Garrett. Um, and basically in this study here, they evaluated core knowledge schools. There's a whole organization in the United States based there, but it's actually branched out to other countries called the Core Knowledge Foundation, founded by E.D. Hirsch. E.D. Hirsch is, a, is, a, is an associate who's, who's he's worked closely with uh, Dr. Willingham a number of times. And, uh, uh, and so if you like Dr. Willingham, you'll like E.D. Hirsch because they're saying a lot of the same things. Um, Hirsch's Core Knowledge Foundation, they've actually created curricula you know, for what should you know in grade one, what should you know in grade two, and hundreds of schools uh, in the United States mostly, but elsewhere as well, have implemented this. And so there have been research studies done comparing the core knowledge schools with schools with the regular curriculum. And so in this case here, this was actually a preschool program in, uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, and the finding was that the results of this evaluation show that the core knowledge preschool sequence as implemented in the Baltimore County Head Start Centers is successful in providing low-income children with the skills and knowledge that children of their age across the country are expected to master. So in other words, positive findings when you have schools that are actually using this type of approach. Now, if the question comes up, well, what, that's in the United States, our knowledge is different in Canada, of course it is. That's why you would have a similar but somewhat different list of standards in Canadian schools. It's, it's not, it's, it wouldn't be the, exactly the same uh, in, in every country, obviously. The idea is to have the basic knowledge, the content knowledge, that enables you to understand the society in which you live. So that means you need to know about parliamentary democracy and how this country works and basic math and all those kinds of things that enable you to function effectively in Canadian society. A fourth study, this is from the Research and Policy Support Group. It was actually a study that was commissioned by the New York, uh, Department, New York City Department of Education. They actually had some schools in New York City uh, on a pilot run of the core knowledge program in language arts, and they found that very positive results, that the core knowledge schools outperformed the schools that were using you know, the balanced literacy approach and, and relying primarily on that in the schools there. And uh, there's, uh, so that's the finding of that study. And uh, Dr. Willingham has a very nice article that, uh, uh, where he sort of summarizes some of this and raises the obvious question, why aren't we looking at this type of stuff? Why isn't this influencing our decision making? Because New York City has actually moved, again, further away from the core knowledge approach, even though the evidence showed that the core knowledge was working very well, they've actually, they've actually moved away from this uh, once again. So, what are some resources I'd suggest? Because I'm trying to make sure I open up to have a little bit of time for questions at the end. There are many excellent books, articles, and websites that provide support to teachers and administrators who wish to learn more about the importance of content knowledge. Unfortunately, a lot of the information that's presented at Teacher in Services and certainly in faculties of education doesn't show you any of this. Uh, I had to learn, you know, th this type of stuff, I didn't learn in a faculty of education. I was fortunate. I'm one of the few education students. I read E.D. Hirsch when I was an education student. So I knew about some of this, uh, you know, when I was starting out my career, and that helped me, that helped me greatly. But there is lots of this literature out there that is great. And this is what's, what's so great about conferences like Research Ed, where you get exposed to much of this, where it's directly presented and you're welcome to, uh, uh, to evaluate it. 
So here are a few, a few I'd recommend. Edie Hirsch's Why Knowledge Matters, Rescuing Our Children from Failed Educational Theories. This is his latest, I would say his greatest book. Um, this book is outstanding, makes the case for why knowledge is important. You can go to the website of the Core Knowledge uh, Foundation uh, where, they, where they lay out uh, inf a lot of information, but this is a great book to pick up and read. Um, and Hirsch talks about uh, what's happening in other countries and some interesting comparisons there. He talks about some changes happening in France and such. Um, Hirsch is still going strong at the age of 90. I mean, that's impressive. Uh, so he wrote this, he was in his late 80s when he wrote this book. Uh, John Hattie and Gregory Yates. This is John Hattie's best book, in my opinion. Some of his books I, I don't like as much in terms of because I don't find they're as consistent presenting the evidence. This is great. Visible Learning and the Science of How We Learn. Co-authored with Gregory Yates, who was a cognitive psychologist, so similar to Dr. Willingham. And it's a great book because it goes over the cognitive science and shows how it practically works in classrooms and uh, an excellent you know, synopsis of research in terms of how, how the mind and the brain actually works. Uh, Daniel Willingham's book, you know, don't need to say much more about this one, but again, all his books are great. This is uh, his first one in education that I read, Why Don't Students Like School? Again, an excellent book. Regular classroom teachers can read it and understand it without much difficulty. Uh, Mike Schmoker, Focus Elevating the Essentials to Radically Improve Student Learning. Out of the list of people I've presented so far, Schmoker is one of those who actually gets to present at standard education conferences. And after reading his book, I have to admit, I kind of wondered why he was allowed to, because he's saying a lot of the same things that I'm talking about here and that Hirsch and Willingham talk about. And uh, I, I had the opportunity to hear him in person in Winnipeg a few years ago, and uh, he was sponsored by, the, uh, by ASCD, you know, a standard education thing, and he came in. And a whole were a lot of the teachers and, and, and the principals, administrators, and consultants, they were mad because he was challenging differentiated instruction. He was challenging, he was, he was just laying out the evidence and, and, and talking about the importance of knowledge and students actually have to write and all those sorts of things. And uh, there were a lot of angry people because that wasn't what they expected. They were expecting the standard conference. But again, good for Schmoker for still being able to go to standard education conferences. Uh, Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths About Education, another great book to go to, you know, very easy to read. Uh, and then I got to put in a plug, I guess, for this is something I wrote recently Content Knowledge is the Key to Learning. If, you, uh, if you're, this is a, not a terribly long report. The reports I write for Frontier are intentionally short because I want them to be read by people. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, it's a short report, but it, it has all the footnotes and the bibliography in there. So uh, the, the majority of the studies that I cited here are in this report. There's a couple that I've, uh, there's one or two that have come out since or that I found since or I've included since. Um, but again, uh, you can go to uh, my personal website, I'll show it later, the Frontier Center website, there it is. Um, I've also co-authored a book, What's Wrong With Their Schools and How We Can Fix Them. Uh, I still think it's a good book, but it was written in 2010, so a lot of the more up-to-date things it doesn't have, so just, uh, just mentioning that. Uh, so just some concluding thoughts before opening up to questions. Remember that the key ideas being promoted by the 21st century learning movement are not new. There is nothing new under the sun. You know, all things go around in a cycle. You know, the, the water flows into the sea and the sea is never full. Uh, so the reality is, is that these things go around in a cycle. So don't, don't get too excited about the 21st century learning about all those jobs that don't exist yet. Um, I, there's a good chance that jobs that exist now are still gonna happen in the next 20 years. I still think there's gonna be people serving us in the restaurant and working as doctors and teachers and a whole bunch of other things I think will still be happening. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, I think it still will be. And there will still be edu education gurus giving presentations. That, that job will never go extinct. Um, 
While content knowledge is often dismissed as secondary importance, the reality is knowledge is just as important as ever. Just matters just as much in the 21st century. Doesn't, yes, it's changing. So learn the new knowledge too. But don't just, you know, don't say, wow, it's changing so fast, so learn nothing. What kind of approach is that? You know, can you imagine like a doctor in medical school, oh, there's so much to learn, I'd better just not memorize anything. Uh, no, you, you should memorize the foundational stuff and then you add to it. Like this, is, this, isn't, this isn't that difficult to understand. And then content knowledge is essential for reading comprehension. It makes critical thinking possible and it empowers low socioeconomic status students. And there are good reasons for teachers to directly provide substantial content knowledge to their students. And I've tried to provide you with some of those reasons uh, today. My contact information is up there, phone, email, website, Twitter, and all that. You're welcome to, to follow me uh, and, uh, and check out some of the other things I have there. So thank you very much for your time. I think I have just a, a few minutes here that I, I, I'm happy to open up to some questions. Question here, yes. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, the question is, does it sometimes, just uh, for those who may not have heard, uh, does uh, the identification of some students as gifted, could that be correlated with, uh, uh, with students coming from vantage homes? Does that happen sometimes? Yes, absolutely, I think that will happen at times. The, the reality is, is that you have advantages when you come from a home where you have you know, higher income and all that. What we need to do is not try to level everything out at the bottom here and go, well, you know, because those students are advantaged, they'll just be fine on their own, and we need to make sure we don't make the, the students who don't know as much feel bad, so we're going to kind of just learn generic critical thinking skills that apply to everyone. That's the wrong approach. The, the right approach is to build up everyone's background knowledge together. Because no matter how advantaged your home is, I, I don't think you're getting all the content subject-specific knowledge that you need. I think schools still have something to teach of value, uh, no matter how advantaged the home you're is. So let's raise everyone up. Let's provide that content knowledge and challenge everyone, whether, you know, whether you're a gifted student from an advantaged home or whether you're coming from the worst poverty imaginable. It shouldn't, either way, they need the best instruction we can possibly provide. Yes? From your research, do we uh, stumble down this path or do we push down this path? How do we get here? You know, it go, it, there's an age-old debate in education, and uh, I would, there's, a, there's a very good book uh, by Diane Ravitch called Left Back, A Century Failed Education Reform. It's, it, if, in terms of understanding some of the history, uh, and, it, and a lot of it traces back to a debate at the Columbia Teachers College in New York uh, about between different education professors, those who focused on content knowledge like I'm talking about here, and those who are all about process, William Kilpatrick, he lived longer than his main opponents. He was a, a very effective instructor. A lot of students liked him. He influenced and trained a lot of education professors. And wow, has that had influence going out. And Ravitch traces this in her book. Um, the ideas go back farther, though. If you've ever heard of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his book, Emily, the romantic notion of students basically kind of learn and teach themselves. This is, there's nothing new about any of this. Um, but the reality is, is that the dominant approach in education faculties has been more of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the progressive approach, the less emphasis on the content, more emphasis on, you know, student self-discovery and all that. Uh, and that, and that does get pushed. And that's because that's what we learn in education faculties. So, yeah. Uh, do you see this, this debate that's going back centuries sort of hijacked by corporate interests? 
Uh, it does sometimes. I'm, I'm not overly thrilled with uh, you know, some of the efforts of, uh, uh, of uh, I like the philanthropic you know, intent and many of the work that someone like Bill Gates does and all that, but there is a lot of, you know, there's an opportunity here for different corporations to uh, have their, uh, you know, their stamp in schools if they sponsor the right tech product. There's nothing new about technology being pushed in schools as the latest and greatest thing. I mean, I remember being a student and hearing about computers are the greatest thing, and now computers are still the greatest thing. And it's just, it, it's the reality, good teaching is the greatest thing. That's the greatest thing. And you could do great teaching, thank you. Yeah. You could do great teaching with, with technology, and you could do it without. I do use technology. Uh, but I never let it replace good teaching. So, but yeah, it, it does sometimes get pushed a bit. Uh, maybe one more question, because I, I don't want to go over it, because I know we've got a break, and then we've got to set up for the next presentation. Yeah, go ahead. Last question. Our board feels uh, taking a lot of stuff from modern learning. Will we'll it just set up in the States? Yeah. It makes a bit of an advocate of uh, private schools, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, not, not a lot. Um, I will say, in terms of the question of private and public schools, um, I would just simply say that this, the, the importance of content and knowledge and good instruction is equally applicable whether you're in a private or a public school. Uh, and so, but I will say this, one of the reasons that a lot of, that a lot of parents, because I've heard this from parents who have chosen private schools, is because they're able to have more influence and they're able to sort of, you know, trust that that school is going to, Provide more of that rigor and you know the curriculum and all that, and they're so and they're looking for something else. Now, is that always the case in private schools? No. Often, private schools are at the forefront of the crazy paths. So there's no guarantee that you know. <coughs> I work in the public system. I'm a supporter of public schools, but I also support the rights of parents who choose the private system. Um, I think you can have good teaching in both private and public schools, and uh, for every parent, it depends on the situation. Um, I'll hang around for a while and I'm around for the rest of the conference. So thank you very much for your time. I know that we're, uh, uh, that we're past our, our, uh, the break starting, so thank you.